Several weeks ago, we started a series, The DNA of Our Faith. And that's pretty important. It's kind of basic Bible teachings of, of our faith. And we started off with who is God, and then we went to who is Jesus. And then the third message in the series was what is salvation? Well, today, in continuing our study of some basic Bible doctrines, beginning in John, the 14th chapter, we come to a very important subject of the Holy Spirit, which you see that on your, your outline. Now, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, it's vital that all of our assertions and, and um, you know, are, are biblical. It's important that what we believe about the Holy Spirit is something that comes from the Scriptures. You know, the, the, the uh, subject of the Holy Spirit is kind of a paradox in many churches today. And even though the Bible um, speaks of the Holy Spirit from cover to cover, many churches never discuss His place in the lives of believers. That's not talked about very much. Yet at the same time, there are some churches, it seems like that's all they talk about. And frankly, um, some of the things that they say about him is just conjecture or it's human fabrication, and it's not really revealed truth from the Word of God. So you have to be careful about what you hear. So to cut through all of that fog this morning, I want to begin just by giving you a list of eight facts about the Holy Spirit so that we will be on the same page and we can understand this subject of the Holy Spirit. Now, in John, the 14th chapter here, Jesus announced that he would soon be returning to the Father. Now, you can imagine how this deeply troubled the disciples at that time. They didn't want Jesus to go because they counted on him. They depended on him. So in verse 16 and 17, Jesus said, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another. Now, if you've taken notes, if you've got your pencil, underline that word another. Because we're going to come back to that just in a minute. It's really important. So I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, for it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he lives in you and will be in you. And then in verse 25 and 26, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said. Now, in this few verses here of Scripture, there's three Holy Spirit facts that I want to bring to your attention. And the first one is this. The Holy Spirit is sent to us from God as a permanent helper, a permanent helper. Now, the NIV, this is the scripture that we're getting this from, the old NIV prior to 1984. Um, all this scripture is printed from that. Well, the NIV word counselor is translated comforter in the King James, and then it's translated helper in the New American Standard. Well, the Greek word here is paraclete, which literally means one called alongside to help. Now, the ancient word, what that really means is, you know, it's for an attorney or a counselor who gives advice or, and pleads one case before a judge. You know, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and stay with us forever. He is a permanent counselor. 
He's a permanent helper for us in our spiritual lives. The second truth that we can get out of these few verses here, the Spirit fulfills the exact same role and has the exact same personality, purpose, and power as the Lord Jesus himself. For three years, think about this, Jesus taught, he inspired, he challenged his disciples. But as he left, he promised that his father would send another teacher, another inspirer, another challenger, you know, who would be exactly like him. In other words, he said, guys, when the Holy Spirit comes, everything that I've done for you and been to you, he will do and he will be. Now, right now you're thinking, preacher, I didn't see that in that text. Where'd you get that? Well, all this is wrapped up in that word another that I had you underline. You see, another in verse 16, in the Greek, there are two words for another, allos and heteros. You know, you know heteros because we, you know, you hear people talk about um, heterosexual or, or um, heterogeneity um, as opposed to homosexual or homogeneity. Well, hetero means another, only different. You know, it's the opposite of homo is meaning the same. Now, the word here is allos. That is the Greek word that is used, allos, which also means another, only exactly the same. Another, only exactly the same. So let me illustrate. Week before last, I preached a sermon. Today, I'm preaching another, a heteros sermon. Today's sermon is different from two weeks ago. But if you want to listen to, you know, if you'll go to Swamp Time Podcast sometime this week and you listen to this sermon, you will hear an Allos sermon, one exactly like the one you're hearing now. I mean, exactly like it, word for word, if you do that. Now, I want you to think about the implications here. Think about what that word means. Jesus said that he would send another, an Allos helper. You know, what does that say to us about the character and the goals of the Holy Spirit? You see, he comes to us everything Jesus was in the flesh to his disciples. How cool is that? And when you think about another exactly the same, in other words, we have the same um, advantage that they did because it is the same. Fact number three, the Holy Spirit teaches and reminds us of truth. Now, verse 17, which we've already read, you know, he is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of that which is true. Now, Jesus said, I am truth, but the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that truth known to us. You know, whatever is true is from the Holy Spirit. If he says it's, it's true, you can count on it. Now, since all scripture is inspired by God, you know, we know that um, all scripture then is truth. In verse 26, Jesus promised these disciples who later, under the Spirit's inspiration, wrote the New Testament. 
the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and remind them of everything that he had said. And folks, still today, this has not changed. The scripture does not change. This is still true today. It is the Holy Spirit of truth who teaches us and reminds us of the words of Jesus Christ. This morning, as I preach, um, if the truth that I share somewhere along the line pricks your heart or you learn something new, it will not be because I am a good speaker. We know, both you and I both know, that's not true. But it will be because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Every time. Now, if you'll turn over to John 16, if you're using your Bibles, a couple of chapters over, John 16, here Jesus, he's still talking um, or teaching his disciples about the Holy Spirit. Look at, starting with verse 5, we'll go through 14. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Now, this passage of scripture here, it represents some of the very same things that we saw in chapter 14. Very similar about the Holy Spirit and his role. But I want to add two more facts out of this section of scripture. Number four here, the Holy Spirit is a person. You know, in the verses that we just read, the Holy Spirit is referred to by the personal masculine pronoun, you know, his, him, or he, 10 or 11 times in that one scripture. You heard me emphasize those words. And folks, every time he is referred to in scripture, he is a he. He is never an it. He is a he. He is never a force. You know, he's not like the, the pagan uh, pantheists, you know, that present him as a force in the trees and the rocks and the animals and all that. He's not that at all. You see, the Holy Spirit is a personality. He has a distinct and objective existence, essence, and agenda. He is who he is. Fact number five, you know, it's also his function to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. You see, the Holy Spirit 
acts as every man's conscience. You know, he makes us aware of our guilt before God and our need for justification. That's something we talked about two weeks ago. And it's his job to make us aware of our lack of righteousness or our need for sanctification. We talked about that as well. You know, it's the Spirit's role to uh, convict us, to help us see ourselves and our needs the way God sees them. So as we can see here, the Holy Spirit has awesome jobs. Now, if we turn past this passage and go over to the book of Acts, the first chapter, we want to pick up, um, actually we'll pick up with verse 4. But here Jesus revealed another major function of the Holy Spirit. And I think probably this is the primary role that the Spirit plays in the lives of Christians. In verse 4, Jesus told his disciples, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for this gift my Father promised. Talking about the Holy Spirit here. Then if we jump down to verse 8, then you know, he said this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So fact number 6, the Spirit empowers us to be effective witnesses for Christ. The Spirit empowers us to be effective witnesses for Christ. If you study your scriptures, all throughout the New Testament, the primary function of the Holy Spirit is to give Christians the ability or the power to resist temptation, to overcome Satan, and to give effective witness for Christ. And then in, the, in John, 1 John chapter 4, in verse 4, says of the Holy Spirit, the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Now something that we need to understand here is that it's impossible for any of us to really live the Christian life and be effective witnesses without the aid and power of the Holy Spirit. We just can't do it. But if we appropriate that power of the Holy Spirit, we can be effective witnesses. You know, you can, we can resist any temptation. We can be effective witnesses for Jesus if we abide by the Holy Spirit's guidance. But on your own, we can't do it. But by His power, we can overcome any challenges in life. And every day, Every one of us needs to claim, we need to affirm, that we need, we need to personalize that truth. We need to understand that so that we can turn the Holy Spirit loose in our lives. Well, while we're in Acts, you know, here, Jesus had just promised the Holy Spirit came on the disciples. They began to preach boldly. Um, they began to proclaim God's word. And at the end of the very first gospel sermon, over in Acts 2, verse 37, those people ask there, what must I do to be saved? And then in Acts, the, uh, the 38th verse there, Peter replied, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Folks, that's us. All who are far off. That's you and me. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And then down in verse 41, 
3,000 we see were accepted the message. They were baptized and the church was born. Now, if you turn over to the next book, we're going to go to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. We find another very important fact about the Holy Spirit. This will be number seven on your outline. All Christians possess the gift of the Spirit. All Christians possess the gift of the Spirit. Friends, if you do not have the Holy Spirit in your heart, then you are not yet a Christian. That's the way that works. In Romans 8 and verse 5, Paul speaks of men who live according to the sinful nature there. In other words, men who had their minds set on, on fulfilling their natural desires and who do not live in accordance with the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 6, what he says, the mind of sinful men or sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. You see, a man who's um, uh, whose mind is set on the flesh doesn't want to obey God. And they couldn't obey God even if they wanted to because he doesn't have the spiritual power to do that. And then down in verse 8, <clears throat> in verse 9, he cannot please God, the last part of verse 8, and then verse 9, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And folks, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. The Bible's plain on this. Folks, this morning, the Spirit of God is either working on your heart from the outside trying to get in, or He's working on your heart from the inside where He now lives. That's what's going on with the Holy Spirit. If you have him, you belong to Christ. If you don't have him, you're not yet a Christian. You're not saved. You do not belong to Jesus Christ. The Bible says if we receive Christ in faith, if we repent and are baptized in his name, we shall receive mission of sins. That's justification, just as if I'd never sinned, and the gift of the Holy Spirit to begin our sanctification. We talked about that two weeks ago. Now, let me make this point. Either you have the Holy Spirit or you don't. Jesus said in the third chapter of John, verse 34, he gives the Spirit without limit. <clears throat> you know, every once in a while, you may hear someone pray, oh Lord, give us more of your Spirit. Maybe you've heard that comment. Maybe you've heard it in a, in a prayer. Now, I'm thinking what they really meant is, God, let us see more of your Spirit's power. I'm thinking that. Or, Lord, let us be more aware of your presence. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person. You don't get him in pieces. It don't work that way. You know, it's like if you invited me over to dinner and said, Oh, Greg, we're so glad you're here. We wish there was more of you for us to enjoy. I would probably say, well, let's get this dinner started and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> you know, and this brings us to the next fact. If you're a Christian, you already possess all of the Holy Spirit. But you know what the real question is? The real question is this. 
in any given moment of your life does he have all of you? You see, the wind of the Spirit, you know, it blows constantly through our lives. You know, the, but the question is this, do we have our sails up? You know, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you, to mold you, to have his way in your life? You know, see, it's, it is possible for us to quench the Spirit, you know, not to appropriate his power, to live in the flesh and live in defeat rather than live in the spirit and live in, in victory. That is possible. You see, uh, the choice is ours to make any moment of any day. You know, are you going to walk according to the flesh or are you going to walk according to the spirit? Now, basically, fact number seven that we just, we just went over, it says, in essence, you know, in the life of every believer, the Holy Spirit is always a resident. But fact number eight says that the Holy Spirit is not always president. In Galatians 5, it talks about the choice that we have as believers and the consequences of that choice. I'd like to pick up verse 16 through 25 of Galatians 5. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, self, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Now, we have seen eight Bible facts about the Holy Spirit. We've seen who He is and really what He wants to do in our lives. But if you'll turn over to Ephesians 6... Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5, I want to conclude today's message by discussing a little bit how we can work with the Holy Spirit so that he can accomplish his will in our lives. So how can we cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Well, the action point or the so what, if you want to get out of this message today, is that each of us um, who possesses the Holy Spirit now needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Ephesians 5 and verse 17 says this, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord, or the will of the Lord is. Now, another word for foolish is stupid. And the indication here is 
that if you don't understand God's will in this area of your life, you're what? Well, I'm just searching or I'm still looking. No. He says you're stupid or foolish. Paul says this is plain. This is obvious. He said, understand this. Look at verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Folks, what happens to people when they get drunk on wine? What happens? Well, basically, they lose control of all of the faculties, right? I mean, it's a mess. You've seen that. You know, they yield control of their thinking and their behavior and their bodily functions to the influence of, of an outside agent. You know, they walk differently. They talk differently. Their whole <laughs> personalities change. And you've seen people when, when they drink, you know, when a person is drunk, they become a totally different person. You know that. You've seen it somewhere in your life. Here's the analogy. Paul says, do not be influenced. Do not be taken over or changed or controlled by wine. But do be influenced or taken over or changed or controlled by the Holy Spirit within you. Now, before we stop, I want to give you four quick insights into this word filled. This word filled is really important. First of all, if you study how this word is used in the New Testament, you will find that it always refers to a state where at any one moment, one emotion takes over and drives out the other emotions. That's what filled means. See, most of us, we just go along life with, you know, at any given moment, maintaining kind of an emotional equilibrium. For an example, right now, most of you are not sad, you know, but you're not in ecstasy either, you know. So when a person is filled with joy, in that moment, there is absolutely no room for any sadness in their lives if they are filled with joy. You know, the joy drives out everything else and it takes over. But, you know, when the Bible said that Jesus was filled with compassion in that moment, his whole being, you know, was focused and controlled by that one emotion. When Jesus confronted the, the money changers, you know, he was filled with anger. At that moment, he wasn't a little bit angry. He was angry. He was totally angry. You know, and that's the way the word filled is used. You know, equilibrium is shattered. And whatever we are filled with, it totally takes control. It totally dictates our thinking and our behavior. The second good point about filled, this word filled is an imperative mood. It's a command to be obeyed. You see, it requires on our part a conscious decision, you know, the exercise of our will. We have to do something. We have to make a decision. You see, God's not going to just zap us from heaven and fill you with the Spirit. You cannot and you will not be filled with the Spirit without making a personal, intentional decision to exercise your faith and to obey. We have the Spirit, but we may not be filled with it because we hold the Spirit at bay. Number three, though a command requires our obedience, this word filled is in a passive voice. Now, an active 
voice or active verb is where a subject acts upon a direct object. You um, English scholars, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, so an active voice verb is where a subject acts upon a direct object, like I hit the ball. But a passive voice is where the subject receives the action, like I was hit by the ball. Makes a big difference. Well, this filling of the Spirit is not something that you just do by yourself. Rather, it's something you must receive or you must allow it to happen. It's something that you surrender to. The fourth thing, this Greek word fill, is in the present tense which means that it's a continuous action. Folks, this is not a command for us to be filled at one moment in time. It don't happen that way. You know, this is not saying that at one point in time, you know, you have some kind of religious experience that changes you forever. It just, bam, happens at one time. This is a present tense command which means that we must have and we need repeated feelings of the Holy Spirit. In fact, every moment of every day, we're to keep on being filled with the Spirit. We must constantly be surrendering to His influence and to His full control of our lives. That's where we break down. We don't surrender to the Holy Spirit's guidance. Now, flowing out of Ephesians 5 in verse 18 um, that we already read is a list of things that Spirit-filled people do when they're filled with the Spirit. Um, verse 19 says, Speak to one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled people in verse 21 um, they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and it affects every area of their lives. And then in verse 22, spirit-filled wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. In verse 25, it is spirit-filled husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church. And in, in chapter 6 and verse 1, it's spirit-filled children that obey their parents as in the Lord. And in verse 4 of the 6th chapter, it's spirit-filled parents they do not exasperate their children, but they bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And in verse 5, spirit-filled employees obey their earthly masters and have good work ethics, serving them wholeheartedly as if they were um, serving the Lord. And then in verse 9, spirit-filled employers, they treat their employees in a Christian manner, showing no favoritism. Now, I want you to go over to Colossians, the third chapter. And I want you to show something that's very, very important here. A lot of times we miss this, but here in Colossians, we have a parallel passage. And in this passage, we see an identical list of the one that I just read you, which described all the things that spirit-filled Christians do. I want you to look at the middle of verse 16. Sing songs, hymns, and spiritual psalms with gratitude in their hearts. Verse 17, in all things they are giving thanks to God the Father. Verse 18, the wives are submitting to their husbands. In verse 19, the husbands are loving their wives. And in verse 20, the children are obeying the parents. Verse 21, the parents are being good parents. 
Verse 22, employees are serving their masters. <clears throat> in chapter 4 and verse 1, the employers are providing for their employees with what you know things that are right and fair. Folks, it's the same list, but you know what? This list doesn't flow out of the filling of the Spirit. But look at what it does flow out of. In Colossians 3 and verse 16, here it says very simply, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Folks, to allow the word of Christ to richly dwell in your life is the exact same thing as being filled with the Spirit. Those two things go together because the Word of God is the handle by which the Spirit of God guides us and empowers us. So to answer our question, there are two things that you can do to help the Holy Spirit fill your life and do His work. And that first thing is this, surrender your will to His control. Surrender your will to his control. And the second is saturate your mind with the word of God. Those two things. You know, if you want the Holy Spirit to be totally in control of your life, fill your life with God's word. Read it. Study it. Hear it. Submit to it systematic teaching. Memorize it. And day and night meditate on it. You see... It is much harder to sin when in that moment of temptation, the Holy Spirit brings to your mind five Bible verses that you've memorized. It's harder to sin then. Give the Spirit a handle to control you. Give Him the tools to, to fill your life by allowing God's Word to dwell richly in you. You see, God's will is that all of us be filled with the Spirit. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for those that have given our lives to you, that those that have been baptized in you. We are so thankful for the gift of the Spirit. Now, Father, we just pray that we would be filled with the Spirit, filled in the manner that we don't have nothing else to hinder the Spirit. Father, we just thank you for a helper just like you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.